At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. I wonder if Judge Tanya Chutkin has stopped laughing yet. Trump made his lawyers file a 29-page document complaining about Joe Biden's coffee mug. Trump really hates this coffee mug. Trump is really aggrieved by this coffee mug. Trump's fractured emotional and intellectual depth perception is triggered by this coffee mug. Trump's last thought before he dies might just be about this coffee mug. He made his lawyers put a picture of this coffee mug in the response to the government's motion to keep him from taking the evidence produced in discovery and using it to try to get somebody to kill the witnesses or kill the prosecutors or kill the judges or kill the attorney general or kill you or me or whoever. Trump believes this coffee mug gives him permission to take just about anything the prosecution has and write another hundred self-pitying posts about it or give another interminable 202 hour speeches about it it's some coffee mug it's the coffee mug president biden was shown drinking from in a nine second video from 11 18 last thursday morning and it has the president's picture on it but with those dark brandon laser beam eyes on it and 2024 on it and in the video biden sips and then puts the mug down and kind of stiffly says i like my coffee dark and frankly as a shade or a burn it's meh but to trump this was unconscionable and a direct assault on him his lord almighty ship imperial trump and it opened pandora's box because to quote trump's response and it is his response no lawyer was stupid enough to think this up to quote trump's response president biden has likewise capitalized on the indictment posting a thinly veiled reference to his administration's prosecution of president trump just hours before arraignment so biden has a coffee mug video with a meme created by trump's cult by the way and that means Trump gets to reveal the names and addresses of the witnesses because my First Amendment right to try to destroy representative government. Oh, and to show everything the prosecution has to Tom Fitton and Cash Patel. You know who these swipes are, right? Patel is the crazy ex-Devin Nunes flunky with the crazy eyes. And Fitton is the 55-year-old guy who tries to look 35 by wearing overly tight polo shirts and makeup. And he runs Judicial Watch, but he's not an attorney. And he's Trump top legal advisor. And he's not a lawyer. He just plays one on TV. And he's the one who tried to explain the Bill Clinton sock drawer case to Trump. And it has become permanently fixed in Trump's mind that Bill Clinton smuggled out secrets in his socks 
or inside his cat socks. Or, or Clinton had top secret socks. In the response, Trump attorney John, he may have committed some light treason, Loro, writes that after Trump's weekend orgy of threats against, uh, against everyone, not only should there not be further restrictions on him, there should be fewer. Quote, defense counsel may choose to bring on, for instance, volunteer attorneys or others without paid employment arrangements to assist with the preparation of this case. The government cannot preclude the assistance of those individuals, unquote. They want to give all of the government documents they get to volunteer attorneys or others. The volunteer attorney would be Patel, and the other is Tom Fitton. And if Judge Chutkin is not still laughing about this poor moron Fitton being described in this filing as other, I'd be surprised. God, I'm still laughing. The premise, of course, is that Trump could protect himself by leaking things through Fitton, or especially this nudnik Patel who was the guy Trump made one of his official liaisons to the National Archives, the one who boasted that he was going to go into the archives and just take classified stuff and post it on a new website day after day. Even if leakages were traced to Fitton or Patel, Trump could say, as he always does, I told them not to. They don't work for me. Fitton who? I don't know anybody named Fitton. Now, to get back to the coffee mug. I give him this. Trump's response to the government's motion to keep him from using discovery materials to try to get somebody to kill the witnesses or the prosecutors or the judges was filed by the 5 p.m. deadline last night. And it is about as reality-based as if Marie Antoinette were ordering Grubhub on the way to the guillotine. And make sure it isn't in a Biden thinly veiled capitalizing on it mug, damn it all. Jack Smith's office, in turn, got its response to the response back to the judge in a little over three hours. And frankly, I don't understand it. There's not one word about the Biden coffee mug, let alone the seemingly requisite 10 to 15 volumes. The government is offering no compromises, acknowledging nothing in the Loro Trump document, noting only that, quote, the central purpose of criminal discovery is to provide the defendant with materials necessary to prepare for a fair trial. The defendant instead proposed an order designed to allow him to try this case in the media rather than in the courtroom. There follows a page of quotes from John Loro's full Ginsburg on the Sunday shows. The rest of it is, you know, legal stuff precedents and stuff like that about how no court ever gives the defendant the right to put everything on TV. But on page five, Jack Smith's office did matter-of-factly reveal a nugget, and it's unclear to me if they know something of Trump's plans or they're just guessing based on uh, how he's behaved every day of his life so far. Quote, the court should not grant a protective order that would allow defense counsel or the defendant to disseminate evidence such as snippets of witness interview recordings, no matter how short, misleading, or unlikely to be admissible at trial under the federal rules of evidence, and claim that it supports some position the defendant later may make in pretrial motions or at trial. The goal of the defendant's proposed protective order, prejudicial publicity, is antithetical to the interests of justice. And then Jack Smith, Thomas Wyndham, and Molly Gaston conclude, the defendant has proposed an unreasonable order to facilitate his plan to litigate this case in the media to the detriment of litigating this case in the courtroom. Normal orders should prevail. No oral argument is necessary. The court should enter the government's proposed protective order. End quote. The end. Not 90 minutes after that, Judge Chutkin scheduled a hearing. So that probably means there will be oral arguments. She gave both sides until 3 p.m. today to agree on when, before Friday of this week, Trump does not have to be there. And that's the real problem. That while to any other defendant in the history of the world, this legal action would have registered as Jack Smith's shot across Trump's bow. I am filing to protect the evidence rather than filing to try to get your pretrial release revoked or a gag order imposed. I'm doing that instead so you get the friggin' hint, Dondi, so I don't have to do it. But Dementia J. Trump is not 
any other defendant in the history of the world. He's like a less realistic Charles Manson. Trump does not take hints. He just sees his streak being extended to yet another day. His streak. This would be day 28,180 of his streak. His streak in which they have not gotten him yet. And with each new day, he is just that much more confident that they never will get him. Trump will push this. And unless Judge Chutkin literally gags him, he will break whatever she orders here, and he will precipitate a crisis. And instead of preempting the next Trump crisis, the government will, as ever, be reacting to it. Uh, and he, he also will bring up the Biden dark roast, thinly veiled, capitalizing on it mug in his next speech, or it will be the entirety of his next speech, the one this weekend in in who knows who knows where intercourse pennsylvania who knows there was a little other news about smith's prosecution and i wish i understood it i've got that odd spidey sense feeling going again his lawyer tells cnn that bernie carrick had his meeting yesterday with the prosecutors tim parlatori said carrick discussed quote what the giuliani team was doing all the efforts they took at the time to take all the complaints of fraud to see what they could do to chase them down parlatori insisted carrick defended giuliani and that giuliani will not be indicted and how in the world you could say that if giuliani is an unindicted co-conspirator i don't know i have to confess i am confused again something else we don't know about is going on with carrick and giuliani and jack smith and i'll be damned if i have a hint as to what it might be i also did not see cnn asking tim parlatori anywhere in this if bernie carrick really is unindicted co-conspirator number six remember that there's also a rift brewing between naturally it's been like a week trump and the new lawyer between threats trump spent the weekend demanding a change of venue turns out john lauro went on a legal podcast sunday and said quote we haven't made a final decision on that issue at all and that as an attorney he had to be careful about changes of venue and this had just gone viral when trump went back out and again demanded a change of venue and by the way, I missed this yesterday, and I apologize to you. The new venue they want is West Virginia, because, John Loro says, it can provide the kind of, quote, diverse jury Washington, D.C. cannot. A lot of people were actually confused by that, quote, thinking Loro meant diverse in a 21st century or even late 20th century way. No, he means diverse as in he can impanel jurors in West Virginia who are slightly pro-Trump, along with those who are insanely pro-Trump, along with jurors who are named Trump. That's diversity. There was also minor movement yesterday in the Fonnie Willis Fulton County case. But while indictments are expected this week or next at the latest, nothing is imminent. Trump's second bid to get the special purpose grand jury and its work thrown out as unconstitutional was dismissed yesterday. And the Atlanta Journal-Constitution says it thinks the earliest day for indictments is Thursday because, quote, some subpoenaed witnesses have yet to receive their 48-hour notice to testify behind closed doors. And I don't know what Jack Smith is talking about trying the case in the media. Trump's spokesmodel and parking lot attorney Alina Haba went on Fox and the host said, you called Fonnie Willis, quote, corrupt. And she corrected him, quote, I said there are corrupt DAs and AGs. Do I believe Fonnie is politically motivated? Absolutely. They are backed by Soros, many of them, as you know. I would point out again, these are the genius lawyers who have yet to win a case for Trump. I mean, they just lost, what, a fourth different case to E. Jean Carroll? The original forced sex case, then the appeal, then her second defamation case against him that they wanted to throw out. And the judge said, no, it can proceed. And now Judge Lewis Kaplan has thrown out Trump's defamation suit against her, which boiled down to she defamed me when she said I raped her because that's not what the jury said I did to her. When you say you didn't rape her, you were only found liable for sexually abusing her. You should probably shut the F up. 
And two other Trump things happened yesterday. There is a second food reference besides the Biden coffee mug. Trump has started a contest to, quote, win a special dinner with him. And I doubt this was deliberate, but if it was, I'll actually applaud whoever did this. To illustrate the special dinner contest, his social media people have repurposed an image, just the image of him, taken from nothing less than his 2016 dinner at the Jean-Georges restaurant in Trump Tower down the street from me, where Mitt Romney fawned all over him in hopes of becoming Secretary of State. They cut Mitt out of this picture. It's just Trump. That was also a special dinner. Turned out the only thing on the menu that night was Mitt Romney. And on social media, Trump also tried to blister Hunter Biden's former business partner, Devin Archer. And got his name wrong. Called him Kevin Archer. And misspelled Kevin. K-E-V-E-N. K-E-V-E-N. Besides which... Kevin Archer was the guitarist who co-founded the one-hit wonder band Dexy's Midnight Runners. And, of course, you remember the title of Dexy's Midnight Runners' one hit, right? Come on, Eileen Cannon. Also of interest here, I was once suspended so gratuitously that 250,000 people signed a petition to get me reinstated at MSNBC. And I was once suspended so gratuitously elsewhere that cab drivers in New York slowed down to yell their support at me. And all the TV columnists wrote nice things about me. But never, never ever have I seen the kind of outpouring for a suspended broadcaster in any field comparable to the love and the rage that has followed the Baltimore Orioles baseball team's suspension of one of its play-by-play announcers for... Well, if you don't know this story yet, you will not believe what for. I have been texting all of my baseball announcer friends since like yesterday afternoon about this story, and I still don't believe what for. That's next. This is Countdown. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. on Countdown, ever had somebody you had never met completely change your life in a positive way and have that change resonate for like 44 years? Or is it just me? The saga of the Adler letter coming up. First time for the daily roundup of the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. Bronze, Piers Morgan. Remember him? The guy CNN fired Larry King to make room for, and then he personally collapsed all of CNN's primetime ratings, and they still haven't recovered? The phone hacking guy from England or Iceland or I don't know. He's writing op-eds for the New York Post now. I suspect this pays $20 or $25. Headline of the latest one, Don't Cry for Megan Rapino and Humiliated USWNT. Hopefully somewhere the Post has explained to its dim bulb readers that the acronym refers to the American Women's World Cup soccer team. Continuing the headline, they're a bunch of unpatriotic losers, Piers Morgan says. Alternate accurate headline, immigrant Piers Morgan, hated by the country of his birth, rails against the nation he envies, but which fired and humiliated him. The runner-up, Kaylee McEnany, now appearing on Fox, quote, news, unquote, quote, non-commentary programming to say things like this yesterday, quote, when I watch this shocking Devin Archer testimony, then blah, 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 Biden this, blah, 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 Biden that, then, quote, I learned a lot from that hearing. There was no hearing. I suppose we can't be certain Kaylee McEnany lied about that. She could just be way more stupid than we all thought, and that was plenty stupid. There was also no video, so when she said she watched the testimony, Kaylee McEnany either lied about that or was, you know, way more stupid than we thought 10 seconds ago. There was also no testimony. It was a transcribed interview, so Kaylee McEnany either... But you get the point. 
There are good liars and bad liars, and then there are the Kaylee McEnany's of this world. But the winners, the Baltimore Orioles and CEO John Angelos. This family has been a surprising disappointment running what was once one of baseball's best-run franchises, but something John Angelos either did or countenanced tops all of the rest of it combined. The website Baltimore Sports Pub reported yesterday that the Orioles' excellent young play-by-play TV announcer Kevin Brown was first taken off TV broadcast as of July 23rd and then taken off all broadcasts as of July 27th and has not returned because of something he said on the air. Oh, no. Oh, no. What now? This is usually racism or homophobia or worse. Not with Kevin Brown, not with the Baltimore Orioles, not with this idiot CEO John Angelos. The website Awful Announcing reports Brown was taken off the air because, well, before an Orioles-Tampa Bay Rays game, Brown read on the air a set of statistics about the Orioles' past one lost record against Tampa Bay. The statistics had been included in that day's media notes written and issued by the Baltimore Orioles team They were then made into a full-screen graphic by his bosses on the TV crew, and Kevin Brown's crime was reportedly saying on an Orioles telecast that, quote, the Orioles have won more games against them, the Rays, than the last two seasons combined, unquote. That's it. That was Brown's crime. Reading stats given to him by the team. But wait, there's more. Enough that CEO John Angelo should get himself a CAT scan today because he should no longer assume that he is right in the head. This is from The Athletic, and I'll just read it as is. Quote, multiple sources briefed on the decision say ownership has enacted a new policy mandating that their broadcasters wear only team gear when on air, which has rankled some. That snafu led to Brown filling in on radio after his comment in the Rays series because another broadcaster got in trouble. Broadcasters have also been reprimanded previously for mentioning past Orioles players who are no longer with the team, unquote. Seriously. So they suspended him for reading something negative, but they had to use him on radio because they'd suspended another guy for not wearing an Orioles logo shirt. This is a major league sports franchise. And by the way, having a renaissance season, leading the American League East with the second best record in all of baseball, and their idiot owner, Angelos, has spat all over it by punishing his excellent lead play-by-play announcer for complimenting the team on how much better it's doing this year against a really tough rival. I have been on the wrong end of a number of BS suspensions in my 44 years in radio and TV and digital, and not one of them has been as BS as this one. It is stupefying, even for an idiot like John Angelos. Oh, and so is the Orioles' response to the reports about what they have done to Kevin Brown. According to the awful announcing site, the Orioles, quote, dispute our reporting that any suspension took place. Yeah, I had one of those, too. Years ago, my employers were too cowardly to even admit they had suspended me, even though they took me off the air for two weeks and made sure all the other employees knew it. And when I tried to cover for them because I knew what bad publicity they would get, I said I was willing to say I'd taken vacation time just to cover them, to save them the embarrassment they would and did endure. They told me not to say that. In a logical world, Kevin Brown would be reinstated with an apology and Major League Baseball would reclaim the franchise from this messianic moron owner, John Angelos. But of course, this is not such a world. John, we are the Orioles. We have never lost in a game. Angelos, today's worst person in the world! To the number one story on the countdown, and my favorite topic, me, and things I promised not to tell. And I was reminded of this the other day, and what a juxtaposition against the Orioles. This is about genius management. 
So I thought about this the other day, and I thought, well, okay, that's a good enough excuse to tell the story of this letter I received 16,194 days ago that changed my life and that still startles me whenever I read it, and I read it a lot. This is the story, and it is a long one, of the Adler letter and the hell through which I had to go just to read it. The Adler letter, falling into my hands on the night of Sunday, April 8, 1979, was like the postscript to a breathless 500-page novel that turns out to be a million times more exciting, more interesting, and more important than any of those 500 pages or the 500 pages combined. We had driven by that point around nine or ten hours. I do not believe I ever actually expected to die on the trip, but I was, at least a dozen times, absolutely convinced that George and I would wind up in the hospital. He and I were college seniors, gone home to see the defending two-time world champion New York Yankees open the 1979 baseball season, and then back on the road for the four-and-a-half-hour trip from the parking garage at Yankee Stadium to the rural wilds of Ithaca, New York. We had done this countless times, but I did not know as I got out of my dad's car and later on into George's that this trip had two previously unimaginable components. First, at that hour, the Adler letter had already been sitting in my mailbox at my apartment at 207 Delaware Avenue, Ithaca, New York, for at least one day, maybe two. And I did not know the other thing and only found it out as George told me about it at the ball game. His father had yelled towards him as George backed out of the driveway that morning. George, there's rain in the forecast. Drive carefully. Remember... I took off your snow tires because it's spring now. The midpoint of the trip to my school, Cornell, and his Ithaca College, more or less, was a McDonald's restaurant in Liberty, New York. And we stopped there and got a late lunch or an early dinner, and I was sitting facing the window, and George was sitting facing the counter. And as we ate and mumbled, I said, George, you have a really bad case of dandruff, or did it just start really snowing. George wheeled around to look out the window. Uh Uh-oh. We wrapped up our burgers and took them with us and literally ran to the car. My father and his goddamn snow tire obsession, George shouted. Within an hour, on the outskirts of Binghamton, New York, three or four inches of snow had reduced speed to just above single digits and visibility to next to nothing. George was a meticulously good driver. Didn't matter. We spun out a full 360, loop the loop. We're going north, oops, we're going west into oncoming traffic, oops, we're going south into the cars behind us, oops, we're going east into the ditch next to the highway, hoo boy, we're going north again. I think we spun out six or seven times on the highway alone before we got to Binghamton. There was some solace in seeing other cars in both directions doing exactly the same thing and concluding that George's father could not have had the time to remove all their snow tires, too. We were not far north of Binghamton, still skidding, still spinning, George swearing nonstop when he interrupted himself long enough to ask me what time it was. I had to hold my watch up to the car window to get brief flashes of illumination from the highway lights. A little after seven, we skidded again. George swore loudly. Put the Ranger game on. I'd do it myself, but we skidded again. By now, I was getting kind of used to it. I turned the radio literally before George regained control of the steering. I found the ranger station, the one in New York, WNEW. If you had told me that night that a little over a year later I would be broadcasting on WNEW, my first thought would have been, so we don't get killed tonight because George's father took off the snow tires? That's nice. Oh, and I work there and I'm not a ghost. If you told me that night that the Adler letter was waiting for me back in my snow-covered mailbox in Ithaca, I might have pressed George to go faster. And they might never have even found our bodies. The storm, as storms often did in those long-gone days, somehow boosted the AM radio signal from New York. And though we were 200 miles away from the transmitter, Marv Albert and the WNEW Rangers broadcast was clear as a bell. The traction even seemed to get a little better. But we both knew the ordeal that lay ahead. The exit from the highway at 
Whitney Point. It amazed us, as it amazes the students there now, as it must have amazed the students who went there a century ago, a century and a half ago, that Cornell University, which I attended, and Ithaca College, which George attended, were both an hour's drive away from the nearest highway. There was, in fact, no access to Ithaca, New York, by anything more than a two-lane road. It was legendary on the Cornell campus that old Ezra Cornell, the barely literate railroad tie preservative tycoon of the 19th century, decided to give away nearly all of his fortune, which today would have been at least a billion dollars, and he told a friend he was going to open a university where anyone can study anything. His friend reacted in horror. They will stampede the place. Ezra Cornell laughed. <laughs> Wait till you see where I put it. Ezra Cornell's little geographical joke was still vividly alive 110-odd years later. The easiest of the routes to his university was the one that took you from Ithaca to Whitney Point. Whitney Point, the capital of the Metroplex there, Whitney Point, Lyle, and Center Lyle, also known as the Calcutta of Broome County, where nearly 3,000 people live atop each other in conditions so crowded that every person barely has his own square mile. Once you got off at Whitney Point, you were at the mercies of Route 79, where if traffic were light or the drivers adroit, you might make it back to Ithaca in 30 minutes. But if you got stuck behind somebody, it could be an hour or two. Or if there was an April blizzard and George's father had taken off your snow tires, it could take you longer than it took Antarctic explorers to reach the South Pole, and you'd see more snow and ice than they did. I believe George and I skidded making the left turn off the highway, but he managed to stay on the road. The radio signal was not quite as fortunate. Within minutes of leaving the highway, WNEW began to compete for space on George's car radio with some audible noise that the radio could suddenly pick up from his turn signals. Make a right, and Marv Albert was being drowned out by a loud kick, 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 as in, Vickers cross the kick, 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 pot van slashes, click, click, click. Within minutes, after the first spin out on Route 79, mercifully with literally no other cars on the road, the woo-woos arrived. We never figured out what they were, but they waxed and waned so slowly that at first I asked George why Ranger fans at Madison Square Garden were chanting woo-woo during the game. George was too busy swearing to answer. The snow was now horizontal, and as it danced towards us in George's headlights, it was hypnotic, and the Ranger broadcast now sounded like this. Vickers, Crossley, woo-woo-woo-woo, Potvin slashes, click-click-click-click-click, damn it all to hell, woo-woo-woo, Davidson holds with the same, woo-woo, son of a bitch. The trip from Whitney Point had taken well over an hour, and we were not halfway there yet when the inevitable happened. George kept a steady, slow pace, 10 or 15 miles an hour tops. He really was a great driver. He did not accelerate, he did not turn, yet all of a moment, his green 1970 Dodge Dart decided to make an abrupt left at about a 45-degree angle. We were off the road in seconds and headed for an unscheduled visit to the front porch of a farmer's house that had to have been set back at least 200 feet from the road. Here, finally, the heavy snow worked to our advantage. It slowed us, then it stopped us, just two or three feet before we would have plowed into this guy's house. However, since we were in Richford, New York, birthplace of John Rockefeller, by the way, or we were in Caroline or Caroline Center or Slaterville Springs or wherever the hell we were, the homeowner emerged bearing not a gun nor an attitude but genuine concern. In fact, he heard the Ranger game on the radio and asked me the score, which is when I noticed that the moment we had left the road, the woo-woos had stopped and the WNEW signal was as good as it must have been in Madison Square Garden in New York. The farmer helped us push the car back onto Route 79, and as we got in, he went and said, Uh, where are your snow tires? George started to swear again. I took over and explained about George's father. Never been up here, has he? George started the car back up and now drove even slower. 
Within a minute, the woo-woos were back. Marv Albert and Sal Messina, woo-woo-woo, where the Rangers lead, woo-woo-woo. We got there, finally. George was actually going to try to drive up the hill that led to the other hill that led to the Delaware Avenue hill where my apartment was, calculating that I had pressed my luck sufficiently. I told him, just let me out at East State and Mitchell, and I'd make it from there on foot. Thankfully, George's father had not removed the sure grip soles from my winter boots. I actually went to my radio station first. It was literally a two-minute walk from there to my apartment. I lingered at WVBR for 15 or 20 minutes and then hiked back. The Rangers had won their game from the station I had called George's apartment, and he had made it back there. And I took my first deep breath since the McDonald's in Liberty. And I reflected that it was only six hours until my next class, and guess what? I was going to cut. I stomped off the snow on my porch at 207 Delaware Avenue, and I opened the door, and I dumped my bag inside, and then I reached into the mailbox, and I saw it immediately. The return address. Adler. WCBS. CBS Radio, a division of CBS Inc., 51 West 52 Street, New York, New York, 10019-212-975-4321. Lou Adler was Radio News in New York City in April 1979. And this was April 1979. I could barely breathe. The Adler letter. What was in the Adler letter, which explains why, five decades later, I know it by heart and can tell you exactly where it is at the moment. That's next. This is Countdown. Resuming the number one story on the Countdown and the several lifetimes contained on Sunday, April 8th, 1979. I survived a nine or ten or eight hundred hour drive in a blizzard right after my friend's dad had helpfully removed the snow tires from my friend's car. I had lived to resume my desperate bid to graduate college in two months and get a job somewhere in radio in three months. And against all odds, amid all the snow and mess, there was a letter waiting for me at my apartment in silent snow inundated Ithaca, New York, a letter from Lou Adler the news director of the leading all-news station in the United States of America. Lou Adler had begun on WCBS the year I was born. In 1967, the station went all-news, and it immediately became the best all-news station in the country. Lou Adler co-anchored the mornings, and eight years earlier, he had become the station's news director. He was the best. His co-anchor, Jim Donnelly, was the best. His sportscaster, Ed Ingalls, was the best. His reporters were the best. His weatherman was the best. His traffic guys were the best. His jingles were the best. I listened daily in high school and when I was home from college. I did not take literal notes, only mental ones. My college graduation, if I made it, was seven weeks away. I had never worked on television in any form, but I had been on radio two or three thousand times by then, and I thought I was pretty good at it. In the preceding months, I had flooded every radio station in every major market in the Northeast with a demo tape and a resume. I figured I might as well start in my home of New York and not eliminate a potential job, no matter how long a long shot it might have been. If I wasn't good enough to work there, I concluded, I should let the people who ran New York's radio stations decide that, since that's what they were paid to do. To this point, they had decided that by not responding. I got a few nibbles from some of the smaller stations, but as April 8th turned to April 9th, I had no job prospects. Other friends were getting offers in Waterbury, Connecticut and Laconia, New Hampshire. The thought of which, and nothing against either of those cities, filled me with terror. And now, after this ordeal by snow and without snow tires, after the WNEW woo-woos and George's father's near-fatal decision to remove those winter tires, here in my hand was a letter from the man who was, to my mind, the best radio newscaster I had ever heard. Obviously, it would be a rejection. But even in that moment, even at my age, 20 years, two months, and change, 
I was awestruck, not only that Lou Adler had replied, but that he alone, of all I had written to, he had been the one who replied. I believe I did not remove my parka before opening the envelope. I did put on one lamp in my apartment, and I read WCBS, CBS Radio, a division of CBS Inc., 51 West 52 Street, New York, New York, 10019212975 April 3rd, 1979, Mr. Keith Olbermann, 207 Delaware Avenue, Ithaca, New York, 14850. Dear Mr. Olbermann, this will reply to your letter of March 27th, with which you included a tape of your sports work on WVBR-FM. Sometimes it's hard to know what a man can do by listening to a brief tape. I stopped. Wait. A man? Wait, wait which, which? Oh, me! I'm just a kid. Sometimes it's hard to know what a man can do by listening to a brief tape, but I must tell you, I was excited by what I heard of yours. I think you have exceptional talent and poise considering your age and experience. You read well and you write well and you know how to use tape. If the short tape is truly representative of what you can do and if your knowledge of sports is broad and if you can perform under pressure well, then I feel you have an excellent future in this industry. By this point, my heart was beating so furiously I could hear it. I was this close to hearing it make the woo-woo sound. I think it might be a good idea for us to meet. Let me know when you can make it to New York. I have nothing here for you, and I know of nothing solid, but if I feel as strongly about your potential after we meet as I do now, a meeting certainly could do you no harm. Sincerely, Louis C. Adler, Director, News Operations and Programs, LCA slash PP. George, I screamed into the phone. Can we drive back to the city right now? He swore. I read George the letter. He paused. No, we, we shouldn't go tonight. You're not going to see him tomorrow. Wait till you get your appointment. But Jesus, this is like the manager of the Yankees asking you to stop by the stadium and bring your glove and bat just in case. I think I got to sleep at sunrise. I had read the Adler letter 20 or 30 times, and not until the 15th or so did I stop expecting it to have turned back into some courteous form letter rejection, badly Xeroxed and slightly off-center. Slowly, it dawned on me that my own assessment of my radio skills were not predicated on ego or even the context of what else I could hear in Ithaca, which was then the 351st largest radio market in the country. Good, but still 351st. I cannot now describe the sense of validation except to say that I half seriously considered not taking Lou Adler up on his offer to meet him at CBS World Headquarters, BlackRock itself, where Bill Paley would be working upstairs. Because short of offering me a job, there really was no chance Mr. Adler could do or say anything more that could make me feel better or more confident that my dream of becoming a sportscaster would not lead me to starvation or to Laconia, New Hampshire. In fact, in person, Lou Adler found more things to say. If I had an opening for a sportscaster right now, I would seriously consider you for it. I would hesitate because of your age and your lack of practical experience, and then I'd probably do it anyway. He was as warm and supportive and informal as his letter had been structured and serious and tempered. Let me take you on a tour. We saw the live studios, the production studios, the writer's area. I wasn't just speechless. Again, I was breathless. And you should probably recognize this man by voice, if not by sight. Keith Olbermann, meet our sports director, Ed Ingalls. Ed, this is Keith. This is the fellow with the tape. Ed Ingalls took a moment, then his eyes widened. Hi! What a tape! Jesus, Lou, don't tell me you've hired him. Did you fire me? I must admit, I thought for a second it might have happened. I did not shrink entirely from that fantasy. Lou Adler laughed. No, Eddie. Then he paused. It was irresistible. Not yet. We went back to Lou Adler's office. Have you got any job prospects? I explained that a month earlier, thanks to a chain of recommendations that stretched from my internship at Channel 5 Television the year before, through a young ABC sports executive named 
Bob Iger, I think it was, to a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend. I had met everybody at the radio network of United Press International, and I was supposed to go back and see them about working there freelance as summer vacation relief for the year ahead in sports and in news. Oh, that would be ideal for you, Lou Adler said. It's a tough place to work. They don't pay well at UPI, but it's here in the city, and every other radio station in this country will hear you on the feed. That's where we hired Ed from, Ed Ingalls. So if we have an opening, he smiled broadly, I can poach you and get you here in less than two weeks, can't I? Mr. Adler then suggested that the CBS station in Atlanta would be needing a sportscaster in a few months. I'll stay on top of that. They already have a copy of your tape. I hope you don't mind. I made several copies of your tape. If UPI does not work out, I am confident you will be offered a job in Atlanta and maybe quite a few other jobs. I hope I've been of some help. Stay in touch. It's one of the privileges of this job to be able to help. But frankly, you're not going to need that much help. I may have taken the train back to my folks' house, or I may have just walked the 20 miles or floated. The UPI job worked out full-time two months later. At the first game I covered for money, I walked into the press box at Shea Stadium, and there was Ed Ingalls. Thank God you went to UPI. The way Adler went on about you, I seriously wondered if he was planning to bring you in and kick me out. The Atlanta offer Lou Adler arranged came. I turned it down. About a year later, I got a call from Adler's assistant saying they were going to need a new afternoon sportscaster at WCBS, and would I send a new tape? But by that fall, when the job opened, Lou Adler was leaving WCBS to become news director and vice president of another New York radio station, WOR. His successor would choose somebody else for the job, just as I heard from the people who ran the radio network that the WOR folks had started the year before. It was not coincidental. Lou Adler had sent these people starting this new network, my tape. There is inevitably from the distant future a punchline. In 2006 or 2007, when Countdown had become the highest rated cable news program that wasn't on Fox, an email appeared in my inbox. I could not believe the name of the sender. Lou Adler. He began just as formally as he had in 1979. He actually felt it was necessary to remind me about his letter. He said he watched every night, and when he found other viewers of the program, he told them the story. Proudly, he said. He asked if I remembered. I wrote back immediately, remembered? Remembered? I told him I still had his letter, and I still had the sense of confidence it had given me that it was central to my decision to more or less give up my sports career at the age of 38 and try news. And I told him the whole driving back to Ithaca and the snow tire story just for fun. Lou wrote back again within minutes. He had just retired after running the mass communications program at Quinnipiac College, and he said he had had a strong sense of his career having been the proverbial punch into a pail of water. Now it was my turn to reassure him that the people like me whom he had supported and taught and broadcast to had long since begun to support and teach the next generation. And that generation was already supporting the one after that. And there would be people in this business beginning their careers after both of us were dead who would owe a debt of gratitude, whether or not they knew it, to Lou Adler, as I always will. Lou Adler died five years ago at the age of 88. There are letters and photos in the hallway that leads in from the front door of my home. They are from Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, Jimmy Carter, Joe Biden, and Lou Adler. I've done all the damage I can do here. Thank you for listening. Here are the credits. Most of the music was arranged, produced, and performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel, who are the Countdown Musical Directors. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray. Produced by TKO Brothers. Other selections, including some Beethoven you'll hear now and again, have been arranged and performed by the group No Horns Allowed. 
The sports music is the Olbermann theme from ESPN2. It was written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN Inc. Musical comments by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was my friend Jonathan Banks. Confidence supplied by Lou Adler. And everything else is pretty much my fault. That's Countdown for this, the 944th day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Arrest him again while we still can. The next scheduled countdown is tomorrow. Bolton's as the news warrants. Till then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.